writing you to remind you that we should love one another. I'm sending Onesimus back to you, and he comes with my own heart. I felt the necessity to write you, appealing that you contend earnestly. Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The exiles of Israel will return, and the Lord himself will be king. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Pastor James, and I'm glad to bring you the message this morning. This uh, series, we've been involved in five one-chapter books. This is book, or the second book of five, and we call the series a fistful of Scripture. So I don't know if, how many of you were aware, just to put up your hand, that there were five one-chapter books in the Bible. Some of you knew that. For a lot of people have never read some of these books, and this morning I have the privilege of bringing the book of Philemon to you. I want to start off with a story. About 15 years ago, when uh, Caroline and I were living in London, um, I got my first call to jury duty. It was the first time for me. I'd never been there before. And I was kind of nervous about what it meant. I got into the courthouse that morning, was part of a huge number of people, and I just patiently sort of sat down for the, for the whole process to take place. And as things unfolded over the morning and then the afternoon, finally, there was that moment in the courtroom where they brought in the accused and read him the charges. And it turned out, I wasn't aware of this at the time, but it was a really high-profile case in London. It had been all over the news, and um, when the charges were read, I have to say that I remember two things, two feelings, almost simultaneously, at once, right inside. The first one was I felt sick. I felt sick because when they read the charges, I thought, how is it possible for another human being to do this to someone? And then, almost at the same time, I felt really confused. I felt confused because I remember saying to myself, almost mouthing the words, what happened to you? What happened to you that you would do this to someone else? I thought back to his childhood. I just was stunned by the whole thing. And later in the day, um, we were moved to another courtroom. Uh, there were just there were multiple courtrooms in play because there were so many, the pool was so big. We were moved to another courtroom for selection. I was eventually dismissed as a juror in the selection process. But when they led the accused in for a second time, they put him in this glass box in the center of the courtroom. And I happened to be sitting directly behind the box. And the only thing that separated us was a thin piece of glass. And the weird thing was, when I looked at him in the glass booth, I could see the reflection of my silhouette fit perfectly within his body. And for me, I remember it was really eerie, a really eerie feeling, because for some reason, it reminded me that the world is a broken place. People can be incredibly broken. And it reminded me of my own mortality and brokenness. The man was eventually found guilty. And in the days after that experience in the courtroom, I just found myself going back over 
the story, I found myself thinking more and more about the case. I thought, God, is there room in your kingdom for people like this? Why, I thought to myself, was this person so sick? What motivates a person to do such unspeakable things? God, how far does your grace really extend? Can your grace extend beyond all of our sin? And the truth is, we live in a world that doesn't understand grace. We we often want people to get what's coming to them. And yet, as a person, we crave grace. We crave it because we long for new beginnings and second chances. Sandwiched in our Bibles between Paul's epistle to Titus and the letter to Hebrews is a small but incredible little letter. It showcases grace. It pulses with grace. It calls on God's people to live redemptively in the world, boldly extending the hand of grace. It's actually just a puny little thing. It's one of the smallest books of the Bible, one chapter long, 25 verses, only 500 words in length. You can read it in about two minutes. The small epistle is known as Paul's letter to Philemon, or just Philemon for short. And I want to start this morning just by unpacking what the letter was all about. Last week, Terry shared an outline with you, and it's available on Temple's Facebook page. We put some copies at the Welcome Center if you'd like to get one. Let me just say a few words about the outline. It suggests four steps in studying Scripture. The first one is preparation. Whenever you read the Bible, we really encourage you to prepare spiritually for what God is going to say to you through it. And then the next step talks about making some observations, basic things. Who's writing this letter? When is it being written? What's the context? The third step is interpretation. You look at, well, what kind of letter or what kind of literature is this? In this case, it's a letter. But in the Bible, there are other things like poetry or prophecy or things like that. Who's being addressed? And what are the themes? And then finally, the application. What practices or next steps is this calling me to? So if you'd like to pick a copy of that up, you can at the Welcome Center. It's just a general guide to help you make observations and get some meaning from it. But with that in mind, I want to take a moment and fly for a second into Rome. Sometime just before 60 AD, Paul wrote this letter to Philemon. Paul was under house arrest, and though the exact place he was under house arrest isn't known, tradition has it that it was in the Mamertine prison. It's a prison that's just located down the street from what would become the Colosseum. The Colosseum wasn't actually built yet. It would be another 10 or 15 years before the Colosseum was built. But this Mamertine prison is historically where they believe Paul was writing. Maritime prison is a low prison, five, six-foot ceilings, dark, dank. Now, Paul's writing to someone, actually, who's a long way away. He's writing to Philemon, who lives in modern-day Turkey, in a little town called Colossae. So if we fly out of Italy and all around modern-day Europe and Greece, you land in this little spot. I find this so incredible. Colossae has not been excavated yet. So you got all these fields. You can see what looks to the left like some kind of Colosseum, which probably now is a farmer's field. Did you let the cows out in the Colosseum this morning? It's weird. But you can see the impressions of what were once structures. 
That's where Paul's sending this letter. Now, Paul ended up in Rome in kind of a roundabout way. Let me tell you the real quick story. He was in Jerusalem. He caused some trouble in the temple. The Jews arrested him, wanted to put him to death. He appealed to his citizenship. He, after a number of hearings, ends up going to Rome. And he's going to travel around on the northern coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Actually, he goes through a shipwreck at one point, And he eventually lands in the highest court of the land. He lands at the very epicenter of Caesar's realm in Rome itself. Now, interestingly, around the time Paul's in Rome, the city ends up with another visitor, and this is really important. He's a slave. His name is Onesimus, but he's in Rome for very different reasons. The encounter between Paul and this criminal, he's a criminal, I'll tell you why in a minute, would, would forever change the course of this fugitive's life. Onesimus, the name in Greek, actually means useful. But at this time, he's not very useful to anyone because he was a slave of the person Paul's writing, Philemon. And he had escaped Philemon's home. He had fled. Turned out now Onesimus, the slave, was a wanted fugitive. And in Rome, fugitives like Onesimus were hunted down, sometimes by boundary hunters or sometimes captured by soldiers, and if they were caught, they were often executed. So, obviously, you have a slave on the run here who fears for his life. He's basically sentenced to be forever on the run, hiding in the dark alleys of a city, along the wilderness roads of the empire, doing whatever he needs to do to stay alive. And under ordinary circumstances, returning home for him just wouldn't have been an option. Even if he was not executed, there's a good chance that if he was caught as a runaway slave, they would brand a huge F on his forehead for the Latin word fugitivus, fugitive. He would be burned, branded as a runaway slave. Now, this letter is going to soon demonstrate that that's not what happens to Onesimus, which is incredible. Let me tell you what I mean. Shift for a moment to the plight of this slave. The relationship that Paul has with the slave's owner is a really interesting one. The recipient of this small New Testament letter, Philemon, Paul's writing to him because he knows him. In addition to being friends, Paul and Philemon have one unbreakable bond. It was Paul who proclaimed the good news of Jesus to Philemon. And the message that Paul shared with Philemon not not only intrigued him, it seized him and compelled him to follow Christ. And as a result of this encounter with the truth, Philemon now begins to gather with other believers in his house, in his home, in this city of what was Colossae, almost 2,000 kilometers away from Rome. Now, we don't know the relationship between Philemon, the person who's being sent the letter, and his runaway slave Onesimus. We don't know whether at some point there was a falling out. All we know is Philemon's slave Onesimus hightailed it at some point, and in all likelihood took something on the way out the door to try to make a way on his way to Rome. Now, in a way only God could seemingly orchestrate, Onesimus finds himself in this big, booming metropolis of Rome. The runaway slave finds the great apostle Paul and comes face to face with the same man that introduced his master to Jesus. 
We aren't told how they finally met each other. Some people think he actually might have, Onesimus actually might have sought Paul out. It's possible, though, when he found Paul in Rome, Onesimus came to him confessing that he had run away, that he had left the home. And the letter says that while he was in Rome, Paul introduced the slave Onesimus to Jesus. The good news that Paul was heralding around the empire, talking about a crucified man who had been risen from the grave and was now reigning as Lord of the world, freely offering forgiveness, and the grace that people needed was the same message that the slave was gripped by. So now, the message that obviously warmed his heart and began to change him from the inside out was the same message his master had received before. So now we have two people. Paul's in a conundrum. He's standing between two people, Philemon, who he loves as his brother, who has given his life to Jesus, and his runaway slave, who has got his life back on track. And now Paul's wondering, what am I going to do? Paul's response to the situation here is brilliant. Drawing on the wisdom of his faith, he pulls out a sheet of papyrus, and with the help of Timothy, he pens this little inspired piece of correspondence and sends it back to the slave's owner in the hands, probably, of the runaway slave himself. I just want you to imagine that unfolding. Just imagine that unfolding. Onesimus, and whatever companions he has, take this one sheet of papyrus rolled up. He's on his way back to Turkey, to Colossae, about the same distance from Sarnia to Florida, on foot. And he's going to make his way back there, and he's going to bring this face-to-face to his master. In the days leading up to that, I'm sure we're nerve-wracking. Onesimus is asking himself, is my master going to receive me back? Would he be met at the door with open hostility? Or would he meet generosity and kindness? As I read the words of this letter over, I want you to imagine the last leg of that journey. Just think about those last hundred meters. The small entourage finally approaching Philemon's house and arriving at the main entryway. Gripped tightly in Onesimus' hand is a rolled-up sheet of papyrus. Onesimus' throat tightens. His stomach is tied in knots. Philemon stares at each person who comes with a puzzled look before taking the small letter and unrolling it and seeing his eyes ricochet from margin to margin. If you were there almost 2,000 years ago in Philemon's shoes, This is what you've read. I'm going to read you the letter. And as I do, I just want you to listen carefully for the way that Paul chooses his words so thoughtfully. Watch the way he calls attention to the bond that the three of them now share in Christ. Listen to the way Paul speaks with conviction about the way Jesus has to transform relationships. Watch how Paul boldly assumes that being a Christian makes a difference in your character. He calls them beyond themselves to a higher place, and he pushes really hard. He milks the relationships for all their worth, and he refuses to take sides. In essence, as one writer pointed out, Paul plays Christ in this drama, identifying himself with both the sinner and the offended party and making peace. He won't accuse Philemon of being such a bad master that the slave had to risk running away. He will not accuse Onesimus of being such a loser that he had to run away as a thief. And he stands instead between them with his arms and his love around them both. So if you were there 2,000 years ago, here's what you would have read. This is a letter from Paul 
in prison for preaching the good news about Jesus Christ, and from our brother Timothy. It's written to Philemon, our much-loved co-worker, and to our sister Aphia, likely, by the way, it was Philemon's wife, Aphia, Aphia, and to Archippus, possibly their son, a fellow soldier in the cross. I'm also writing to the church that now meets in your home. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. I always thank God when I pray for you, Philemon, because I keep hearing of your trust in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people. You are generous because of your faith. And I'm praying that you will really put your generosity to work. For in doing so, you will come to an understanding of the good things we can do for Christ. I myself have gained much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because of your kindness, and you have so often refreshed the hearts of God's people. That's why I'm boldly asking a favor of you. I could demand it in the name of Christ, because it's the right thing to do. But because of her love, I prefer to just ask you. So take this as a request from your friend Paul, an old man, now in prison for the sake of Christ Jesus. My plea is that you show kindness to Onesimus. I think of him as my own son because he became a believer as a result of my ministry here in prison. Onesimus hasn't been much use to you in the past, but now he's very useful to us. I'm sending him back to you, and with him comes my own heart. I really want to keep him here with me while I'm in chains for preaching the good news, and he would have helped me. I know he would have on your behalf. But I didn't want to do anything without your consent, and I didn't want you to help because you were forced to do it, but because you wanted to. Perhaps you can think of it this way. Onesimus ran away for a while so you could have him back forever. He's no longer just a slave. He's a beloved brother, especially to me. Now, he will mean much more to you, both as a slave and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, give him the same welcome you would give me. If he has harmed you in any way or stolen anything from you, charge it for me. Charge, sorry, charge me for it. I, Paul, write this in, I write this in my own handwriting. I will repay it, and I won't mention to you that you owe me your very soul. Really. <laughs> yes, dear brother, please do this favor for the Lord's sake. Give me this encouragement in Christ. I'm confident as I write this letter that you will do what I ask and even more. Please keep a guest room ready for me. I'm hoping that God will answer your prayers and let me return to you soon. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you his greetings, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my co-workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. There you go. Fascinating, isn't it? I want to think for a moment just about applications. There's the letter, and as I read it, one of the things I thought is all of us can relate to parts of this letter. All of us can. All of us can actually relate to the characters in this letter. Maybe for some of us, we're in a moment in our lives where we're like Philemon. We've actually been hurt. We don't feel it's right we've been hurt. We feel we've been wronged, and it's not right. And we need to consider how to get on with the business of forgiving someone who's hurt us. Or maybe some of us may be in a stage like, or a moment where we're like Onesimus, 
We've done something we regret, and we want to make things right, and we want to take the next steps to make it right. Or maybe for some of us, we're standing in life in a place where we're right in the middle of a mess, and we want to help bring peace and reconciliation to, the, to those around us. More than likely, at different times in our life, we'll actually go through all of those parts, won't we? We'll all go through all of those stages, depending on what we're facing. But essentially, this little epistle of grace stresses three main themes, forgiveness, repentance, and reconciliation. Let's start with forgiveness. Looking at it through Philemon's eyes, the big issue here for Philemon is forgiveness. The common assumption, at least according to the rules of that culture, was that Philemon had a right to be angry with Onesimus. Philemon had to forgive a slave who had abandoned him and who might even have helped himself to the master's money on the way out the door. In light of that, think about yourself for a moment. Who do you have a right to be angry with? How have you been hurt? Who are you struggling to forgive? How we deal with forgiveness is really, really important to people. I once I heard a story once about a group of people in Polynesia who declare what they would do is they decorated the insides of their huts with all kinds of objects or artifacts. And each of those objects or artifacts represented something that someone had done to them to remind them. They hung them there to remind themselves what others, of what others had done to them. And they prevented them from ever forgetting that those things had happened. These items were just suspended from the ceiling. And I, I know firsthand how difficult forgiveness can be. I know that. I realize it's not always easy. And I can't suddenly wake up and, and feel one morning like I'm just ready to forgive. But I know too, like, unlike Onesimus in the story, people don't always admit their mistakes and seek reconciliation. So forgiveness is a complicated thing sometimes. But at heart, you know what I found out? I admit, I'm a lot like the Polynesians, hanging stuff from the top of my metaphorical hut, remembering, rehearsing what people have done to me and how I can justify my hurt. And I've had to learn, you've ha I've had to learn you need to break that habit. That's not the way to go through life. I've had to learn that I need to practice forgiveness. Sometimes it's not for the other person. We know that. We practice forgiveness to set ourselves free. Without it, bitterness can easily just take root and resentment corrodes your soul. So I've worked on it, and to my surprise, regardless of how it's always been received by others, I've come to realize that I can experience freedom by forgiving others. What about you? Life is short. In the ceiling of your hut, is it cluttered with reminders of what others have done to you? Do you want to nurse the hurts and lick the wounds of your past forever? Or do you want your future to be set free? This little letter encourages us to begin the hard road back even when we have a right to be angry at someone. Here we extend the opportunity to others to be forgiven and release them into the arms of a wise and loving God. But maybe, maybe that first part, forgiveness, isn't what you primarily connect with in the story. Maybe it's more the realization that like Onesimus, you've done something wrong. You've really hurt someone and you want to take responsibility finally for your mistakes and ask them for forgiveness. We don't know, actually, 
how Onesimus initially reacted to Paul's suggestion that he take this letter back home to his master. We don't know that. It's possible he nodded his head up and down to Paul, but inside he was thinking, you can't be serious. What's important in this story is instead of staying on the run, Onesimus was willing to look at himself and look at his own mistakes and go back to his master. There's a couple of reasons why that's fascinating to me. Number one is it's likely Philemon forgave him, or why would they stick this letter in the Bible? It would have been a failed experiment. So that's, that's interesting. But second, something happens to Onesimus later in his life. It's not clear, but some believe that the Onesimus who eventually becomes Bishop of Ephesus is the same guy. So not only does he go home and get restored, not only does he own his mistakes and go back, if that's the case, which we don't know for sure, it's very possible God deeply blessed this man for his faithfulness in taking ownership of his own mistakes. Maybe that's, it's time for some of us to do that. Time to admit we've fallen short, we've missed the mark, it's time for us to seek the healing that can come from repentance. Time to cultivate a heart that's teachable and willing to admit failures. And time to develop a new way of living without making excuses or trying to blame others. The final piece, reconciliation. It's probably more than obvious now that Paul pushes really hard, doesn't he, in the letter for reconciliation. He uses every scrap of influence he can muster up to try to make this happen. He says, I could demand it of you in the name of Christ Jesus because it is the right thing for you to do, but, well, feels like he just did that, right? But because of our love, I just ask you to do that. Or he says, if he's harmed you in any way or stolen anything from you, that's where the idea comes that he might have helped himself on the way out the door for the trip ahead. If he's stolen anything, charge it to me, Paul says. I write this in my own handwriting. I will repay it. And I won't mention to me, by the way, you owe me your very life. Like, that's pretty heavy-handed stuff. They're designed to shore up every little bit of relationship Paul can have with Philemon and to bring a desired result. Uh, Bishop Tom Wright recently made this profound statement. The major difference between Christianity and every other worldview that there ever was is exactly this, that the gospel of Jesus Christ can and does accomplish reconciliation. That's why things like this mattered, I think, so much to Paul. Reconciliation and restoration showcased the gospel. Paul inside said, this has got to work. We've got to show people we're a new humanity. There's something different about us. And Paul, as a leader in the early church, puts his shoulder behind making that happen. I don't know, maybe Paul's the person you can relate to in the letter. Are you in a place where you have the leverage to bring healing and redemption to others? We need Christians to step forward and be reconcilers and peacemakers, people who are willing to work in difficult and costly situations, people who are willing to stand in the gap, and people who are willing to assist with the pain in the world. We need people like that because the world's full of conflict. We need people like that in our city. We want to be known as a church like that. Are you ready to be the person who brings healing and reconciliation to the broken world? That's the message that Jesus brought. That's what his life and death and resurrection made possible, and that's what others are actually dying to discover. 
a sense of belonging, a place you can call home, a place where relationships are different. Maybe that's the place where God has put you. So just to wrap up, I was trying to think um, when I wrote this sermon about uh, what a modern-day example of a Philemon story might look like. Would there be a modern-day equivalent? And I came across a, a, a story by Philip Yancey. If you haven't read anything by Philip Yancey, he's just a brilliant writer. And it belongs, this story, I think, in some ways to every one of us. Because just like we can find ourselves in the letter to Philemon, we can listen to this story, I think, that I'm about to read you. And you can locate yourself in this story, too. For many of us, I think, it resonates in different ways. And it's very close to our hearts. So let me close by sharing that with you. A young girl grows up on a cherry orchard just above Traverse, Michigan. Her parents, a bit old-fashioned, tend to overreact to her nose ring, the music she listens to, and the length of her skirts. They ground her a few times, and she seethes inside. One day she's had it with the restrictions and the rules. I hate you, she screams at her father. And later that night, she acts on a plan that she's rehearsed many, many times. She runs away. She'd been to Detroit only once before on a bus trip with her church youth group to watch the Tigers play. Because, new, because newspapers in Traverse City reported the lurid details of gangs and drugs and violence in downtown Detroit, she concludes, that's probably the last place my parents will look for me. California, maybe, or Florida, but not Detroit. Her second day in the big city, she meets a man who drives the biggest car she's ever seen, and he offers her a drive, buys her lunch, and arranges for a place for her to stay. He gives her some pills that make her feel better than she's ever felt before. Her parents were keeping her all this time from this fun. The good life continues for a month, two months, and then a year. The man with the big car, she calls him boss, teaches her a few things that men like. And since she's underage, men pay a premium for her. And before long, she's living in the penthouse, ordering room service whenever she wants. Life is good. Occasionally, she thinks about going home, but now home seems so boring that she can hardly believe she grew up there. One day, she has a brief scare when she sees her picture printed on the back of a milk carton with the headline, have you seen this child? But by now, she has blonde hair, and with all the makeup and body piercing and jewelry she wears, nobody would mistake her for that child. Besides, most of her friends now are runaways, and nobody squeals in Detroit. After a year, the first signs of illness appear, and it amazes her how fast the boss turns mean. And before she knows it, she's out on the street without a penny to her name. She still turns a couple of tricks at night, but they don't pay much, and by now all the money goes to support her habits. It isn't long before the winter sets in, and she finds herself sleeping on metal grates outside the department stores. Dark bands circle her eyes. Her cough worsens. One night, as she lies awake listening for footsteps, all of a sudden, everything about her life looks different. Instead of a woman of the world, independent and strong, she feels again like a little girl, lost in a cold and frightening place, and she begins to cry. Her pockets are empty, and she's hungry. She needs a fix. And then something in her memory jolts, and an image fills her mind of silky yellow ribbons blowing in the warm spring wind. It's a picture of her home in May, 
when a million cherry trees are in blossom at once, with her golden retriever dashing through the rows and rows of blossomy trees in chase of a tennis ball. She's wearing that day her beautiful yellow dress, her silky yellow ribbons blowing in the air. And as she returns to that place in her mind, there's an innocence about it and a memory with her. Those memories remember a time for her when she was filled with hope and she was safe and she was loved. God, she mumbles, snapping out of her fleeting thoughts, why did I leave, she says to herself. Her eyes well up and pain stabs at her heart. Finding, a nearby, finding her way to a nearby payphone, she begins to dial home. Three straight phone calls, three, 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 sorry, three straight connections without the answering machine. The third time she stirs up enough courage to leave a message. Dad, Mom, it's me. I was wondering about maybe coming home. I'm catching a bus up your way, and I'll get there about midnight tomorrow. If you're not there, well, I guess I'll stay on the bus and just keep going until it hits Canada. The next day, as she travels home, she wonders, what are her parents? What if they're out of town? What if they miss the call, don't get the message? Shouldn't she have waited another day or so until she could talk to them? Even if they are at home, maybe they've written her off. Maybe, they should have, maybe she should have given them some time to overcome their shock. Her thoughts bounce back and forth between the speech that she's going to give to her father and the worry she has. Dad, I'm so sorry. I know, it was wrong. I know I was wrong. It wasn't your fault. It's all mine. Dad, will you forgive me? She says the words over and over, her throat tightening even as she rehearses them. She hasn't apologized to anyone in years. It's dark outside. Every so often, a billboard sign posts the mileage to Traverse City. When the bus finally rolls into the station, its air brakes hissing in protest, the driver announces in a crackly voice over the microphone, 15 minutes, folks, 15 minutes is all we have here. 15 minutes, she says, to decide my life. She checks herself in a compact mirror, smooths her hair, licks the lipstick off her teeth, and wonders if her parents will notice the tobacco stains on her fingers, if they're even there. Walking into the terminal, she doesn't know what to expect. Not one in a thousand scenes that have played in, out in her mind prepare her for what she sees next. There, amid the concrete walls and plastic chairs in Traverse City, Michigan, stands a motley crew of 40 brothers and sisters, great aunts and uncles, cousins and a grandmother, and a great-grandmother to boot. They're all wearing goofy party hats, and they're blowing noisemakers. Taped and taped across the entire wall of the terminal is a computer-generated banner that says, Welcome home. And out of the crowd of well-wishers breaks her dad. She stares out through the tears, quivering in her eyes like hot mercury. She chokes out the first words of her memorized speech. Dad, I'm so sorry. He interrupts her. Hush, we've got no time for that. No, times, no time for apologies. You'll be late for the party. The banquet is waiting at home. Now that, for us, is the kind of community we love to see. That's the kind of community I think we want to be as a church, right? We want to be a kind of place that welcomes strangers home, a place of belonging and of grace and of safety. 
a place where people can really experience forgiveness and a fresh start. Let's pray. God, as we heard this small message from this small letter this morning, help us, Father, to be the kind of community that practices the kind of grace that we see in this epistle. A kind of grace that welcomes people home with big, wide-open hearts and arms. A place that's full of compassion and love. Father, help us to put flesh and bones on the words we heard this morning and be, really live this out today. People who are forgiving. People who know when it's time to own our mistakes and seek amends. And people who can be agents of reconciliation in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.